Hey, what's up? And welcome back, storytellers. To keep up with all things 88 Cups of Tea, make sure you're following us on Instagram at 88 Cups of Tea. We love posting fun Instagram stories announcing new podcast episodes and featured articles and essays, along with favorite quotes from our content. And my favorite things about Instagram is our Instagram story takeovers from some of your favorite guests. And we get to repost your Instagram stories whenever you tag us at 88 Cups of Tea. Make sure to head over to Instagram.com slash 88 Cups of Tea to join in on the fun. Now about our podcast episodes, if you are enjoying our show, I have a super quick favor to ask. If you haven't yet hit the subscribe button and submitted a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to do so. Not only do I love reading your reviews, but your reviews also give new listeners a glimpse of what to expect from our episodes. The more ratings and reviews that we get, I hear that it really helps with the algorithm to allow new listeners to find us and ultimately feel less alone in their creative journeys. Thank you to each and every one of you for taking the time. And thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you to those of you who already left a review. On that note, I want to shout out BeautifulAngel17, who wrote us a review that said, each episode that Yin uploads is incredibly well done. She asks thoughtful questions that really get to the heart of why we write and how storytelling helps share the world around us. Also, she has the most amazing guests. 88 Cups of Tea is definitely a favorite podcast of mine. Thank you for all that you do. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to write such a heartwarming review. I so appreciate you and it's an honor to be one of your favorite podcasts. I really couldn't do what I do without my team. I'm so grateful that you recognize the work that we do and I'm wishing you all the luck with your creative work. Now on to today's episode. Guess what? This is the last and final episode of the year. Can you believe it? How is it almost 2020? All right, so this is a special finance-related episode, and I've been saving this one since the spring of 2019. And now is the perfect time to release this episode to help you prep for your taxes and also keep in mind of what finance-related things you should look out for as a writer for the upcoming year. So today we have a very special guest, We have Laura Adams, a personal finance expert and author of many books, including her book, Debt-Free Blueprint. And she's also the founder and host of Money Girl Podcast, where Laura shares personal finance, real estate, and investing tips to help listeners live a richer life. I swear by her podcast. I've listened to so many of her episodes, hence why I reached out to her. And I love the way she breaks things down into very bite-sizable easy to digest formats because usually I don't like to sit down and listen to any finance related stuff, but she does so in a way that is very relatable and in a way that empowers me to feel like I can really take the advice of what she's dishing. I'm super excited for you to listen to our conversation because she shares how she discovered her passion for personal finance that kickstarted her blogging, podcasting, self-publishing, and PR career. She chats about how she created her own opportunities to grow her podcast and gain representation from Quick and Dirty Network. We then dive into Laura's experience self-publishing where she shares invaluable marketing tips like how to take charge of your marketing plan, creative ways to utilize your social media platforms, and how to establish a marketing budget. And later, she dishes some real talk on side hustles, taxes, and becoming debt-free. Now let's jump right in. Hey, 
Hey, everybody, we have Laura Adams with us today. I am so excited about this because I am personally a huge fan of Laura. She has her own podcast, which is part of the Quick and Dirty Tips Network, and she's the host of the Money Girl podcast and part of the blog as well, handling all of that because she's a boss hashtag boss lady. And I'm so pumped because y'all know talking about me and my finances as an artist with an acting background, doing some writing here and there and having conversations with you all. I know that a lot of you are in the same boat as I am or as I was, where not a lot of us are aware of what we need to do financially to take care of ourselves with our money, investments, or just even overcoming debt. And that's something that a lot of artists or people in the creative field don't have that much experience with. And Laura is incredible. And I'm a huge fan of hers because she's so good at breaking it down for average people like me to understand and makes all her advice super easy to follow very actionable, and she makes you feel so empowered to make smart decisions. So, Laura, I'm so happy and excited to have you on the podcast. You have no idea. Welcome. Thank you so much, Yen. It's my honor. I am thrilled to be with you. Oh my gosh. Okay. So before we jump into all the talk about money and finances and all the fun things, could you just rewind a bit about how you got to where you are today. You are known to be the person to go to and you're a recognized personal finance expert. You're author of multiple books and audiobooks. So what led you to where you are today? It's been an interesting path because if you had asked me when I was in college, if I thought this is what I was going to be doing, you know, 10, 20 years down the road, I would have thought you were insane. (laughs) It really came in a very winding, twisty path. And so when I got out of school, I had an interest in economics. I actually had a natural resources degree. And at the time, I thought that I might put that to use as an attorney. Environmental law was kind of a, a big field and a growing field when I got out of school. But I I realized pretty quickly that I just wanted to work. I didn't want to go back to school and I didn't really think that being an attorney was what I wanted to do. So I thought, well, let me get out in the world and just see what I like doing. And I was instantly pulled toward financial jobs. So accounting, anything related to numbers and finance. I'm very, very detail-oriented, so it made sense that those types of jobs would be good for my skill set. And after working in those jobs for a few years, I kind of realized that either I needed to be a CPA you know, go back to school, get a master's in accounting. And those were fields and directions that I just really didn't want to take. So I started looking at other types of work and very entrepreneurial. My husband is also very entrepreneurial. So we got into self-employment at that point. We decided that we really wanted to be our own bosses and we wanted to work for ourselves. And we ended up getting into the floor covering business, which is something a lot of people say, well, how did, you know, how did that happen? (laughs) And it was a friend of ours who was in the business who wanted to get out of the business and he was selling it. And so we thought, well, you know, what do we have to lose? We'll, we'll get into this 
see if we like it. It had done very well. It was a very successful business previously. So we thought, well, this is something that we can build up. And if we're not enjoying it, we'll turn around and sell it in a few years. And that's exactly what we did. We built it up and we're able to make a very profitable sale from that business. And then that kind of led us to think, okay, well, what's next? Do we want to do this with another business? And I was really interested in going back to school at that point to get an MBA. And I thought, you know, if there's more in the business world that I don't know, I want to figure out what that is. Like, I just really wanted to understand all aspects of running a business. So I went back to school and it was while I was getting my MBA that I realized that it wasn't corporate finance that really got me excited. It was personal finance. There were a lot of people in my program that were very successful. They were C-level executives and had multiple master's degrees, but they were really struggling with their personal finances. And I was kind of scratching my head and thinking, well, how does this happen? How does someone who's really educated, really smart, how do they kind of mess up their personal finances so much? Mm. And that's when I thought, you know, I need to really turn my, my attention to the personal side. And so we did have one personal finance class in my program. And I realized when I was taking that class that I was really well ahead of the curve. I had always had a personal interest myself. You know, even from the time I was a little kid, I was always wanting to manage money and I was begging my parents for a checking account, you know, when I was a a teenager. And I was always wanting to manage money and had always read about it, followed, studied, just kind of informally. But then I realized that having that formal education on top of it was kind of icing on the cake that I needed to feel that I could kind of make a a change and a switch and go in the personal finance realm. And it really just started by blogging. And this was 2006, 2007. And I thought, you know, I'm just going to start blogging about what I really want to remember from my coursework and what I need and see how it goes. And that led to a podcast and that led to a lot of great feedback from listeners that just sort of kept me going. Eventually, I was invited to be a part of the Quick and Dirty Tips Network. That was in 2008. And it just kind of took off from there. They got bought out by Macmillan. They allowed me to publish several books. And that led to a whole new platform of getting the concepts and sort of these very complex topics, but explained in simple ways, getting that out to a broader audience, which eventually led to me doing PR work, which is primarily what I do now. So it's been kind of a twisty road, but always, I think, following what my heart was desiring and what my heart was truly interested in, it kind of led me down a road that, you know, is where I am now and just doing what I love every day. Wow, that is so inspiring. And you know, it's crazy because your podcast that you independently produced, you mentioned got the attention of Quick and Dirty Tips Network to approach you as the host of Money Girl podcast, which I find so inspiring. And was that something that you didn't see coming at all? Or was that almost in a way, you know how you and your husband created the floor covering business and you built it up together and then you sold it. So with your independent podcast, before you 
were invited into the QDT network. Was that something in your mind where you're like, you know what, let me build this up and then perhaps build it to the point where I could maybe pass it on, sell it, or, you know, if there is a possible way where I could meld and collaborate with a larger network, or were you just doing the podcasting initially as purely for your own passion and entertainment and just to reach people independently? Yeah, yeah, and it was really just my own creative project. I mean, it was something that I was doing late at night and early in the morning, you know, while I was working a full-time job. It was an experiment, really. The technology for podcasting was relatively new. There were a lot of challenges. And so I was just really engaged by figuring it out, you know, trying to understand how it all worked, making it come together. So really, initially, it was just a creative passion. And then after doing it probably for about, I would say, a year, I realized that there were other opportunities, like maybe there were sponsorship opportunities, maybe there were you know other ways to collaborate. And so I got a call from somebody or an email from somebody in the industry who kind of tipped me off and they said, hey, I've heard about this Quick and Dirty Tips network and they're really trying to find a money person. They want to do a money show and you know you should contact them. And it was just kind of a, a, an off the cuff email that I got from somebody who was just sort of, you know, reaching out as a friend. And so that's what led me to reach out to them and say, hey, you know, if you guys are interested in collaborating, let's talk. And that's what started it all. So that was in, I'd say early, that was early 2008. And then by that summer, we had formalized a deal and we're off and running. Wow. Talk about kismet and also you creating your own opportunities. That's something that we talk about a lot on the show as well. Just creating your own opportunities, especially as artists, especially as people in the creative fields, the jobs kind of land on our own laps if we create it for ourselves. And you did just that. So that is really incredibly inspiring for us to hear. And Laura, it's insane to me. You guys have received over 40 million downloads and that's just numbers I pulled from your bio. So I'm sure by now it's gotten way more than the 40 million as well. And it's just incredible how many people's lives you've touched and you've changed and you've helped. I remember coming across your podcast episode because I was searching something about credit cards and learning more about it. And oh my goodness, it helped me so much. And I finally felt like I could understand what was being taught to me. Usually I'm listening to these audiobooks about finance, all of this about your own personal savings and how to become debt-free at a young age. And I just could not understand it, even though it was obviously English. I'm like, but there's something that just was missing. And then it wasn't until I came across your show where I realized it's in the way you communicate with people, with your audience. That's what makes it so much easier to actually listen to everything in bite-sized formats and understanding and then taking action. So this is so incredible just to hear your journey and how you got to where you are today. And I know you also mentioned that that also opened up opportunities for you to write books and to get those published because you said that was it the QDT was bought out by Macmillan you were mentioning earlier? That's right. Yes. And then so that allowed you to have these opportunities to then have these multiple books. So, and again, this community, they're full of writers. So why don't we dive into a little bit of that? Because I find that so fascinating that you were able to publish both traditionally and 
independently. And that's something that our community's very, very curious about. And that's actually one of the top topics that we're hoping that we could talk about. So do you mind if we just start jumping into that part? Yeah. So I was so lucky to get a deal from Macmillan. I didn't have to go out and find an agent. I didn't have to pitch. They were pretty much like, you know, hey, if you can give us a book on the basics of personal finance, you can give it to us within a year. Here's the advance that we can give you. And, you know, I had a lot of latitude and a lot of freedom. So I felt very fortunate that they were willing to do that and not really kind of even strap me down with a proposal from the very beginning. So it was a sweetheart deal, no doubt. And, you know, my job at that point was just to figure out how I wanted to structure the book, what made sense. And I will say that dealing with a traditional publisher has a lot of advantages. And there are certainly things like working with an editor, working with, you know, copy editor, you've got multiple people that can help you kind of craft and shape the book. I've only written, you know, nonfiction, obviously. So I'm sure the process is a little different for fiction. But for nonfiction, I found that that help and support that I got was really critical for me as a first time author, that support system that really allowed me, I think, to produce the best book possible. And so I'm always going to be grateful for that. I will say that when it came to marketing, however, I was a little disappointed. I didn't get the support on the marketing side that I had expected. And I think with traditional publishers, they're so busy you know, you are one book in a whole, you know, list of, of publications that they're putting out. They can only give you a limited amount of marketing time. So it was about six to eight weeks oh. that I had a focus, you know, of the in-house people working on getting me radio interviews, you know, getting me publication promotion. And, and so I did get some good PR initially, but it didn't last very long. And so I realized pretty quickly that I was going to have to take charge of my marketing. And I think that is why it is so important for authors to have platforms these days, you know, even if you get a great PR team with your traditional publisher, you've got to sustain that marketing long term. So if you've got a platform, it's going to be so much easier to do that. And then, as you mentioned, I've also been self-published. My, my recent book, Debt-Free Blueprint, is something that I created A to Z on my own. So everything from, you know, dealing with the cover art, the formatting of the book, you know, editing, all of that, uploading to all the different platforms, recording the audiobook, etc. All of that was my project. And so not having the support of a publisher definitely is a lot more work. But in the end, you've got a lot more creative control. So making sure the cover is exactly what you want, the title is what you want. If you're looking for that type of flexibility, self-publishing is just amazing in terms of, you know, giving you that power to do what you want, take it in any direction that you want. And then of course, do the marketing as you see fit. Oh my gosh. Okay, Laura, you just opened up Pandora's box. So I hope you are ready to unpack even more because this just got me even more excited. I'm going to rewind just a few sentences ago where you mentioned that with marketing, 
for the traditional side, it was a little bit disappointing because there was only six to eight weeks to push you out through interviews and everything. But then the long-term vision wasn't there and that was never discussed. And that's actually funny enough, you know, I know you're writing nonfiction and our people, like our community, they do mostly fiction. But that is something that I've been hearing from some writers and some published authors as well, where they feel like the team overall kind of dropped the ball on the marketing side, even though knowing there are so many people that they have to represent. They have so many author clients and writer clients. So can you give us more of a step-by-step in how you marketed with your own platform? Because thank goodness you had your own platform because of all the work you've been doing through the podcast and all of that. So thank goodness you had your own built-in audience. So with your own built-in audience, was there like a timeline that you set for yourself or did you seek someone, seek out somebody that had experience that you knew had a book out and you're like, hey buddy, may I ask you a few questions? And then they maybe gave you some advice on how to go about this or was this all intuitive, you knowing like, you know what? the publishing team gave me about six to eight weeks. I'm going to give myself six to eight months or like several years. And then I'm going to do this each week or by month one, I'm going to complete this. By month two, I'm going to complete that. How did you go about that in the technical aspect? Yeah, I do think that if you've got a year ahead, that's ideal. Mm -hmm. You know, if you have a year of marketing, you can get an incredible amount done. Now, if you don't, you can certainly work with any time. If you, let's say you've got something that you're writing now and you plan to publish it in two months, three months, you can definitely do a more concise marketing plan. But yes, I mean, I started really about a year in advance. And what I wanted to do was to first reach out to people who I thought might be able to help me promote the book. So I think if you've got that time, you can reach out to other influencers, whether it's, you know, podcasts, whether it's other blogs that are in your niche, other writers that you can cross promote with. If you can kind of look at those relationships that you've got ahead of time, then you're going to be in a really great position to do some promotion with other people. Because the goal is getting your book in front of new people, right? So if you can expand not only your own platform, but make sure that other people are exposing your book to their platforms as well, that's truly kind of the holy grail of marketing. So if you've got plenty of time to begin that outreach, and it really can be as simple as saying, you know, hey, I've got a book that's coming out the end of the year. And could we schedule an interview or a guest blog post for a week or two ahead of that time and kind of getting things on the calendar very early, knowing that a lot of guests and bloggers have an editorial calendar that can fill out quite a bit in advance. So you want to make sure that you've got time to get on their calendar And so that's really the first thing that you want to start doing. And you know what? You can do this even before your book is completed, you know, and that'll even put a little bit more pressure on you to make sure that you achieve your deadlines for getting things done when you know that somebody's going to be counting on you for a blog post or an interview to promote the book that will help kind of spur you on. That's the first step. That's the first stage. Mm. Were you able to do anything outside of podcasts? Like you were saying, guest articles. Are there other creative ways that you might have heard about or you've tried? Like, I don't know, even like giveaways, anything that's an extra enticement for, let's say, example, someone that you're trying to get 
on their show or on their website with a featured article, but they're just so overwhelmed and packed. But then maybe to add leverage, something like, oh, you know what? I could include a giveaway or I can do this to almost like up your chances of getting booked more likely. Yeah. So I do think that approaching people sometimes is going to take several tries, you know, and this is really why you want to to begin early. So I would say don't give up if you email somebody and you don't get a response from them. Just think that they're probably busy. You know, it's mm-hmm. not something personal. Just remember that they've got a lot of incoming email. So trying multiple approaches that are going to be definitely showing them that you understand who their audience is, understanding and kind of pitching how you can add value to the audience. And anything that you can do that will make it just as easy as possible for the person that you're pitching, all of those are going to help you get a response. So being persistent, you know, kindly (laughs) persistent is a good strategy. And the more you hear from somebody, and if it just really seems like, yeah, they understand my audience, they understand what I'm trying to to do through my channel, whatever it is, my blog, my podcast, I think that's just going to up your chances. Also, if there is something that you can do to promote that person's work. So maybe you see, oh, okay, well, this person has a new book, or this person has something that they're trying to promote, you can say, well, kind of an exchange. Here's what I can do for you and make it a win-win. Those are really, really great tips. Laurel, how about the next phase you were saying? Because that was just phase one. So what was phase two for you? So after you have really begun to lay some of the foundation for those promotions and and getting your audience outreach, you know, getting more exposure basically from multiple audiences, then you really need to begin to think about how you're going to incorporate marketing into the actual book. So a lot of people will write a book and then publish it and, and then think, oh, well, gosh, I wish that I had put this in the book. I wish I had promoted my website in the book. I wish I had promoted a giveaway or some kind of free opt-in in the book, and they didn't do it. And this is one benefit of self-publishing, that you can always go in and make those changes after the fact if you forgot something. Mm. Whereas if you're traditionally published, what is published is done. So you need to make sure that you've got those kind of figured in ahead of time. So maybe it's something as simple as having a page that is all about you, your social media channels, your website, making sure you've got the opportunity to get people to find you, you know, no matter what that is. Again, if if you don't have a site that you want to send people to, maybe it's, you know, maybe it's an Instagram channel, whatever it is that you are doing as a an author. Hopefully, if you're an author, you've also got a blog and are, are writing there as well. So thinking about how you're going to incorporate marketing into the book. So you've got to do that from the very beginning. And that's just got to be a part of writing. And so, for instance, with me for Debt Free Blueprint, I offer a lot of free information, free downloads for people. So when we get to a chapter that's about setting goals, for instance, I'm going to have a free download that is a worksheet for people to actually work through and, and write down their goals. So there are worksheets for all kinds of different topics that I cover in the book. And so people can go to my website. There's a page where they can download all kinds of great information there. So getting kind of that marketing strategy 
clear in your mind ahead of time or as clear as it can be ahead of time is going to be a really important thing that you will thank yourself for later on. And then as you're writing the book, you're going to be thinking about you know, what are ways that I'm going to be marketing this? Now, I will say also audiobooks are just really, really hot right now. So if you have the ability to record audio or go through Audible's ACX is the Audible version of the creative side for them. So ACX.com is where you can upload your book, or you can even find a narrator there who will narrate for you. Now, it is going to cost to get somebody to narrate for you, but it may really be worth it in the long run because audiobooks are so popular. So I would say you want to think about kind of the cost benefit of also providing an audiobook. And also, as you are writing the book, think about how it's going to translate into audio. A lot of people write books and then when they read them out loud, they don't really sound as good as they read on the page. Mm. So reading your book as you go, editing as a listener, as well as a reader, is going to make sure that you've got a great audiobook if you do decide to publish one. Oh, such great advice, Laura. Is that the end of phase two or is there more to that? Or is there a phase three, phase four, or that's basically wrapped up in your marketing plan? So we do go further. So I would say if you're looking at phase three is really once the book is published in phase three, you're going to begin doing, you know, all of the actual interviews. You're going to be doing all of the the outreach that you were planning for in phase one. And we typically publish an ebook and a paperback or even hardback first and then publish the audiobook later. But you can actually do all of them at the same time now if you're if you're ready and, and everything is uh, set to go. But I would say that, you know, step three and phase three is really just doing all of those interviews, doing that outreach, and also looking at what are the other opportunities. So for instance, on Amazon, you've got uh, the ability now to create Amazon ads for your, either your book, your paperback, your audiobook. So just like you can do Google ads for Google, you can do Amazon ads so that your books will show up in a variety of ways when people are searching. And so there are ways that you can create ads that are based on very specific. So like when somebody is searching for, let's say, another author. So for me, you know, Susie Orman, if somebody is searching for a Susie Orman book, I can make sure that the ad for my book, Debt-Free Blueprint, will show up when a similar type of search is happening. So there are a variety of ways that you can get your ad to display within Amazon. And I love Amazon ads because you know that people who are there, they're book buyers, right? They're looking for a book, an audio book, and it is something that, you know, they're actively seeking out. So I, I think that doing ads there can really pay off. And are there any more phases? So, you know, I would say that in terms of ongoing outreach, you want to think about marketing as something that's long term. I don't really think about the fact that marketing kind of ends. For me, it's 
always happening. You know, even doing this podcast with you and mentioning my book means that I'm doing some form of marketing for the book. So it really is ongoing and you've got to be your own best advocate and finding ways to put that book in everything that you do. So put it in your email signature, put it on your, all of your uh, social media profiles, putting it on your blog, of course, making sure that even if you do a guest post in the bio, you've got a link to the book. So making sure that once that book is published, you are linking to it from everything that you do. Laura, have you tried anything where you've mobilized your own audience members, your own potential readers or the ones who've already bought your books? Have you ever tried anything by asking them to share or be your ambassador for your book? Let's say for the debt-free blueprint, were you able to ask them like, hey, you know, could you please spread this or share this with your family and friends? Because it really is such a helpful tool for everyone to have in their lives. And you spent a lot of time and effort in that book. Have you tried anything like that? Yes, definitely. So one of the things that I did initially was to really get people within my audience excited about the book and also getting people to consider giving a review in exchange for a free audiobook, let's say, or a free ebook. And that's something that you've got to be careful about. You can't compensate people directly for giving a review, but you can offer to give people a free copy of the book and, you know, encourage them to give a review on Amazon or Audible if they enjoy the book. So that is something that is important. You want to make sure that you're you're getting reviews because they do help you rise in the rank when we're talking about finding a book on Amazon or Audible. Having that book appear higher in the search on those pages is just going to make you more visible. And a lot of that has to do with whether you're getting reviews, how many reviews are they good reviews? So I would encourage folks to definitely ask for those reviews. And again, you can't compensate people for it. That's really not the best way to go about it. But anything free that you can offer in exchange for that will encourage people. Also, I think one strategy that I did use successfully for the launch of the book was giving people a special price. So saying, okay, we're going to launch the book this week of November. And so for everybody who purchases the book during this week, you're going to get a special price and making sure that everybody knows that, okay, if you get the book as soon as it's released, you're going to get the lowest possible price. And that serves two purposes. Not only do you get the book out to your audience quickly, but getting all of those purchases quickly will, again, help your book rise in the ranks on Amazon and Audible. So it's kind of serving two purposes. You're making sure that you're going to get more visibility there. And, you know, anything that you can do to kind of concentrate those sales into a short period of time is just going to make sure that your book is seen. And if it's seen more, it's going to sell more. And it's kind of this this great cycle that happens where more visibility gives you more sales and then more sales give you more visibility. Oh, that is so helpful. And I can just imagine our show notes content manager is going to be scribbling this down furiously for your show notes page. So thank you for all these step-by-steps, Laura. You're so incredible. And I knew I could always count on you because you're so good at that on your podcast. I'm very, very pumped about this. And now I want to also ask overall for marketing, whether it's traditional or self-publishing, how do our listeners calculate 
how much they should invest in marketing, especially knowing they're already limited in funds. Yes. So this is something that if you've got a budget for, you definitely want to think about setting aside money, as I mentioned, for looking at ads through Audible or or Amazon. Rather, those are really, really key. That is where I would invest money if you've got it to spend. So thinking about even a small budget, many of the ads that you can purchase are really inexpensive. And, And so what you can also do is set them up in a way so that you are paying for these ads when you are making sales. And so there's a way that you can look at the ad results in the dashboard and sort of call the ads so that only the ones that are actually selling books are going to display. And so you know that every time you're being charged for an ad, it's likely going to result in a sale. So you are making it much more scalable for you. Now, that's not to say that every penny that you spend on advertising is going to give you a return. You've got to do some experimenting in the beginning. So setting aside a little bit of a budget, I mean, even if it can be $100 a month, that can really go a long way when we're talking about ads on Amazon. So putting aside a little bit of money, and you can think about that as you're doing this year-long marketing program, maybe making that a goal to save a little bit each month. So by the time you are ready to set those ads up, you've got a little budget there. And then you can begin to really do some experimenting, focusing on just those ads that are working, getting rid of the ones that are not working. Um, And that's really the way that many successful authors are scaling their business. They are really doubling down on the ads that are working and simply doing away with those that are not working. So it takes a little bit of practice, but there's just, you know, a lot of flexibility in these ad systems. And I think Amazon is really kind of catching on to the fact that authors want to advertise. And so they're making it easier for us to see the analytics. They're making the dashboard more comprehensive and really making it an ecosystem where authors can take control very easily and see the success that they're getting so that, you know, you're not just wasting dollars. You are actually spending it on ads that are getting your book sales. Mm, So good. Okay. Now, you just mentioned earlier how you had to do every single thing for self-publishing. You didn't have a team, and that was a good thing. That was the pros that came with traditional publishing is you have a team. But with self-publishing, you are all on your own. So were you delegating any tasks or roles to like independent contractors? Let's say you finished writing your first draft, second draft, but you know you need a second pair of eyes to have a look through it. Were you hiring an independent editor, also like a, a book cover artist, I'm assuming, correct? And layout designers. Was that something that you had to manage as well? Because you you have to be your own business person if you're choosing self-publishing. That's right. And you really are like a project manager. And yes, I had multiple people working on different aspects of the book. So yes, the cover design, that's something that you can begin working on right away. You know, once you've settled on a title, you can begin looking at different options for cover designers. One tip is to look at the books in your genre and look at the titles that have sold well. What do those covers look like? You want to give your designer some ideas about what you want. You can't just leave it completely up to them. 
you want to give them some ideas. So taking screenshots of books in your genre that are bestsellers and saying, hey, we're not going to copy this, but we want to do something similar. Readers become accustomed to cover art for a particular genre and a particular niche. So you want to make sure that you conform to that mostly. And of course, you want to give yourself some creative liberties there and and make it stand out as yours and something that's unique, but it does need to fit into the genre. So give your cover designer, and I did that. I gave mine a a ton of uh, ideas and just wanted to see what they came up with. So definitely you need a professional designer. I would say that's key. Editor, Absolutely. Every writer knows that you need a great editor. So I definitely had, uh, for me, it was more of a copy editor for nonfiction, but I would imagine fiction writers may want a topic editor perhaps, or a, um, you know, a, a regular kind of story editor, and then also a copy editor that might be helpful. And, you know, it's really not that expensive when you think about looking at the project and making it as good and, and as successful as it can be. You've got to make sure that the copy is clean, that you don't have any holes in your story, you know, and a a good editor is going to make sure that there are no questions or lingering issues in a story or a character that seems like it just isn't consistent. They're going to help you with that flow. So I would say those are the two biggest expenses. And for formatting, I use a software called Vellum. It's V-E-L-L-U-M. And it's a super simple software that will format your book in any way that you want. So ebook for Kindle, for all the different devices, and will also format for paperback. So that was just a phenomenal software. I think the cost was about $200 and you own it for life. And if you're a writer, it's just something that you can use over and over. So I would definitely encourage folks to look at that for formatting. Oh, okay. That's very helpful. Talking about Valum and just actual tools, is there a specific website that you can advise where our listeners can find book cover artists and copy editors or any other team member that you might've brought on or that you might need to get this project finished. I know there are some sites. There's upwork.com. For me personally, I enjoyed that. Is there anything that you can advise or you can recommend? I really just used an editor that was recommended highly to me. It's funny, I actually had somebody that I was interested in, but they were so busy at the time that they couldn't work with me. And so I said, well, who do you recommend? And so they recommended somebody else. There's some great editors out there. So I would just work with somebody that comes highly recommended, somebody who's also going to be able to meet your deadline. You know, are you looking for something that needs to be turned around within a couple of weeks or you know, do you have more time? So that's key. And for cover designers, I can't even remember who I used, but there are lots of good options if you search online. And I know Upwork too has many, many good designers. And I would be specific when you're searching, make sure that they do have experience with book covers. You want a graphic designer who understands the dimensions that are needed, you know, and the specific kind of skill there that is necessary to lay out a good book cover with the spine, the back matter, all of that is pretty specific when it comes to design. So I'd find somebody who's got experience with that. Okay. Now the overall scope of a general budget and, you know, could be from your experience with your own self-publishing journey or other friends that you've had, 
what is the average budget that someone should set aside if they are interested in going the self-publishing route? I would say that if you've got $1,000 to spend, you could spend a couple hundred on vellum, a couple hundred on a cover designer, maybe four or five, six hundred on an editor, and depending on how many you need, that is really a great, great budget to have. But you know what? If you're just starting out and you all you have is a couple hundred dollars, I would say looking at you know cover designer would probably be the way I would go. There are other software programs that you can use for formatting. For instance, Amazon, they've got kind of um, an internal program that you can use when you upload your file. So you could certainly use the Amazon software for that. I really feel like if you are just starting out and you've got minimum budget, I would say go for the cover designer and making your cover as attractive as possible. Because, you know, they say you can't judge a book by its cover, but we always do (laughs) judge books by their cover, right? especially online. So that's key. And it's got to be right in order to get people to click on it. Okay. That is really, really helpful. And that also goes right into fiction writers as well. It's true. They always say, like you said, don't judge a book by its cover, but we all do it. And there's nothing to be ashamed about that. So with overall, there's conversation in the community where there's talk about how you should be setting aside a certain amount of payment or a certain amount of money from your publishing payments for taxes. So do you have any advice on how much a self-publishing author or somebody who went the traditional route as well should set aside how much money they should put aside where they know it's going to go right to taxes? How is all that calculated? How do we No, is there a program we could just plug it in? Yeah, so this is something that every self-employed person has to deal with. So whether you're a writer, whether you're a small business owner, whatever you are doing where you are not an employee of an employer who's giving you W-2 wages, if you are getting your own income, you are responsible for your own taxes. And so what you want to do is think about what are called estimated quarterly taxes. This is really the way the IRS requires us to pay. And so what that does is it makes sure that you are paying taxes throughout the year versus once a year, because the IRS knows that as a self-employed person, it's very easy to just spend all of your your income and your profit and not set anything aside. So what I would recommend is that if you set up a separate, let's say a separate checking account or a separate savings account, putting a quarter, at least one quarter of every bit of income that you make from your writing or your business, setting 25% aside, that is going to make sure that you've got plenty there to pay your taxes. So if you're just starting out, you may not be set up for quarterly taxes yet, but I definitely recommend it. And if you've got an accountant, they can definitely help you understand how to do that. And it's basically just a little form that you send in and send a payment electronically to the IRS at the end of each quarter. If you are not set up on quarterly, you're going to 
obviously have to pay it all at the at the end of the year. So you've got to make sure that throughout the year you're keeping up with that. And if you just say, you know what, every time I get income, whether it's an advance on a book, it's a royalty, you know, maybe it is a blog post that you're writing for hire, whatever type of writing you're doing, take one quarter of that income, set it aside, and that will make sure that you've got plenty there to pay. Now, the amount of tax you actually owe is going to depend on how much you earn throughout the year. But I would say 25% is, is a good average amount to make sure that you can cover that tax bill and not have to come out of pocket for any additional money. Oh my gosh. Laura, you are a lifesaver. Thank you very much, especially for us creatives and artists. Most of us don't have any experience with this and are not that aware of it. At least I know that's from my own personal experience. So I just learned so much just from that conversation, that little tidbit. So y'all, everybody listening, please make sure you do check out Laura's podcast episode because she has way more in-depth episodes that break everything down. So now I'd love to spend the rest of our time together, Laura, about side hustles and earning money because I did a quick survey, a poll just yesterday, and it was an overwhelming majority of people asking about side hustles to earn money because many of them, you know, their dream is to write. And if there's anything to help support that, if there's any advice from your end, any tips from your experiences or from stories you've heard from your own podcast and just meeting people every day, I'd love, I'd love for you to share. Yeah, I am just a huge proponent of having multiple sources of income and really thinking about all the ways that your writing can make you money. It is going to pay off in so many ways. I think that the more you do, the more you branch out, the more opportunities are going to come. You know, more people are going to know about you, understand how good you are and give you more opportunities. So I would say don't hesitate to begin this sort of this journey into side hustle work because it, it really will pay off. So, you know, no matter if you're thinking about writing, whether it's for, let's say, a blog that's looking to hire writers, editors, this is certainly a very profitable way to earn. If you're a good editor, a good copy editor, there are so many opportunities to do that on the side. You know, as we mentioned, that's a big part of the self-publishing process for me is, is hiring those people who are doing that on the side. And I think just about everyone that I've worked with also has a full-time job. You know, they were really just editing for me as their side hustle. So it can be very lucrative. I use editors in many different aspects of my work. So I would say, first off, that kind of makes sense. If you're a good writer, giving your services for editing can really bring some additional money in. I would also say that you want to think about other people in your niche. So for me, you know, I'm writing about money. I'm a nonfiction writer. So there are other ways for me to turn that topic into income, you know, and, and primarily I work as a spokesperson. I work with different brands, helping them communicate the message of money to their audiences. And so, you know, I've been able to turn the topic of my expertise into a broader career. And, you know, that may not translate directly into uh, for a fiction writer, but I do think that you may be able to think about different skills that you have as a fiction writer, 
could you help other fiction writers be better writers, for instance? You know, could you begin a process where you've got maybe like a mastermind group that you're charging for and you've got a, a group of writers that are all meeting, getting advice from you, especially if you're already published, you've got that credibility to begin kind of, you know, looking at yourself as a teacher and a mentor to other people. I know a lot of people would pay for those types of services. So I think it's just about being creative and thinking about what are the skills that other people need that you already have and and that you can just simply put a little bit of information on your website about, begin reaching out in your community, looking to trade organizations. I know there's so many trade organizations with opportunities for either speaking and networking there that could turn into lucrative opportunities. So putting those feelers out, figuring out what works and kind of doubling down on what works and not doing, you know, the things that you thought would work, but didn't work. So trying a lot of things and just going forward with what sticks is, is I think the best advice I can give. Oh, that's so good. Okay. So Laura, I know we have only a few minutes left and there are also the third topic, the most popular one, everyone was curious about becoming debt-free. And I'm excited about this because you just had your book out and it's debt-free blueprint, how to get out of debt and build a financial life you love. That's something that I do stress here as well. And I know we don't have enough time to dive into that, but you do have amazing podcast episodes over on Quick and Dirty Tips, Money Girl. There's things, you know, we've had people curious about getting out of student loans. You had a great episode about how to get out of student loan debt faster, a six-step guide to managing your student loans. That will be linked in your show notes page. You have a really great episode about how to declutter your finances and tax records. And another one about 2019, what you should look out for, which I loved. So maybe we could just wrap it up with one tip, actually, and we'll wrap it up right there. I would say put it all on paper or put it in a spreadsheet in front of you. A lot of people are stressed about debt because they don't even really know how much debt they have. They're kind of putting their head in the sand about it. So if you can create a spreadsheet that shows every debt that you have, what the interest rate is and the balance, who you owe it to, just lay it out in front of you and trying to tackle it from the highest interest rate to the lowest interest rate. So the highest interest rate is costing you the most. And that's typically, for most of us, it's going to be credit cards. So, and even if you've got multiple credit cards, ranking them from the highest interest rate to the lowest interest rate, that's where you want to start. In a lot of cases, those student loans, they may be high amounts, but the interest rate may be relatively low. So I would recommend not paying those off ahead of schedule, kind of staying to the schedule, just paying the minimum amount each month, but really tackling those debts that are costing you the most because that's going to save you the most. When you save more, you've got more money to put toward the debt. So thinking about it in that order of priority can give you some focus on where to start and understand that maybe the student loans are not the biggest problem for you, depending on the types of debt that you've got. Looking at it holistically, that's always going to help. Oh, that was so good. Okay. So Laura, where can we grab a copy of Debt-Free Blueprint? 
I would love folks to head over to my website, lauradadams.com. I've got the book there, links to it on Amazon. The uh, Audible audiobook is there. There are also a lot of great freebies on my site. So if you're looking for work, worksheets and different types of information for different topics, whether it's a health savings account or whether we're talking about uh, you know calculating your net worth, I've got a lot of different free worksheets there. So I would encourage people to check out the freebie section. And the book is available really anywhere books are sold. So thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm so thrilled. Laura, you are wonderful. Let everyone know where to find you on social media. Yeah. If you want to check me out on Instagram, I'm at Laura D. Adams on Twitter at Laura Adams and Facebook. Just search for Money Girl and I'm there. And I also have a free Facebook group that has thousands of members. If you're interested in just getting a question answered, it's called Dominate Your Dollars. And so if you want to apply for that group, I will accept your invitation and then you'll be in. And I think we have close to 7,000 members that are just amazing people. So I'd love for folks to check that group out as well. Incredible. Laura, you are truly a queen. Thank you for doing what you're doing. Thank you so much for impacting the world like this. It's such an honor to have you on the podcast and I am so thrilled and I cannot wait to release this episode. I know everybody's going to get so excited about this. Thank you again, Laura, for your time and your expertise. Yen, it's been my pleasure and I am thrilled that you are podcasting and thrilled that you're building such a fantastic audience. Keep up the good work because you've got an amazing show. I love it. And that wraps up my conversation with Laura Adams. Laura, I cannot thank you enough for sharing your incredible tips and tricks for self-publishing and giving us some real talk about taxes. Storytellers, thank you for hanging out and listening in. As always, if this episode really resonated with you, I would love if you stop by and say hello and thank you to Laura on Twitter at Laura Adams or on Instagram at Laura D. Adams for her time with us. To find all the resources and books mentioned in her episode, along with tweetable quotes and the timestamps of highlights throughout our entire conversation, head on over to Laura's show notes page at 88cupsofteacom slash podcast slash Laura dash Adams. If you'd love more 88 Cups of Tea content that'll motivate you and warm your heart at the same time, be sure to read our articles and essays on 88cupsofteacom we are so proud to publish pieces by authors like Shannon Messenger, Sarah Faring, Annie Sullivan, Brittany Morris, Taylor K. Mejia, J.C. Cervantes, and our most recent article by Myra Cuevas. We have a new article and the last one of the year by Celia Perez coming up next Monday, so be sure to look out for that. Have a super productive week, and in the new year, we have a super exciting lineup for 2020. So stay tuned, and I'll catch you next year. 